What is fluency? What's computational estimation? When should we use algorithms? And is an algorithm the same as a strategy? Previous episodes have given us a shared background to begin to answer these questions, and today's guests help us further explore the answers. We know that fluency is about more than just accuracy. It's about being able to make good choices, about being able to become a critical thinker. And this episode helps us reflect on how to move this theory into practice to think about the when, why, and how of fluency, and to help us adopt strategies that we can then use to empower children to become decision makers. Welcome to the Kids Math Talk podcast, where in each episode, we give parents and educators practical tips and insights that will deepen mathematical understanding while also encouraging the conversation about math to remain active and positive. I'm your host, Desiree Harrison, elementary math coach and Kids Math Talk founder. Today on the podcast, we have the authors of Figuring Out Fluency in Mathematics, Teaching and Learning, Moving Beyond Basic Facts and Memorization, grades K through 8. So welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's great to be on uh, Kids Math Talk. This is Jennifer Bay Williams, and I'm a professor at the University of Louisville. And hi, I'm John San Giovanni. I'll echo that. It is great to be here today. I am a coordinator of mathematics in Howard County, Maryland, about halfway between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. All right. Thank you both so much for being here today. And so this book is relatively new. So it's you know, August right now when we're recording this, I've had this book coil bound. And then you can see I have like tabs everywhere because I didn't want the spine to wear out because I was like flipping back and like moving through it so much because I just have to say like, this is so well done. And I just feel like everybody needs to read this book. Educators, parents, administrators, it's just so well done and so accessible. It's not jargony, but you give us the language that we need at the same time, which is a delicate balance, but you all pull it off. So there's so much that I want to ask you to give some insights and to give our listeners a little bit about what this book is all about. And so I just want to talk about the beginning because you start us off from the beginning really strong and you give the reader a real purpose for the book. And so you have the title that gives us the purpose and then the the title of the first chapter, what does fluency really mean and why does it matter? And you will also talk about that math education field hasn't always done the best job of defining fluency. And on the podcast, I talk a lot about how definitions are so important and so that we have a shared background and understanding. And I completely agree that this definition is very fuzzy and we have to move away Away from everything just being about theory and to, um, to move toward relatable conversations. So when educators are talking with parents and other community members, what are some talking points that we should use as we answer these questions of what is fluency and why does it matter? So with the relatable information about fluency, I think begins with connecting it to literacy and thinking about what it, what it means to be fluent just in your language. So, you know, I'm a fluent English speaker and I am a not fluent Spanish speaker. So in English, 
if you say something, Desiree, right now, I could probably think of like four other ways I could communicate the very same thought or very similar thought. But in Spanish, I probably have one way if I'm lucky. And to me, this is what we do with the math fluency is that we give students maybe one way if they can remember it instead of giving them, you know, a collection of ideas that allow them to choose how they want to, you know, do their math problem. So I think that connecting to uh, fluency as we see it out there in everyday world and relating that to math is a good start. John, what would you say? Yeah, I think that's really, uh, those are, that's a great point, Jenny. I think, um, you know, when I work with parents and try to communicate with them, I try to boil it down to something they're really familiar with. And, you know, I think about actually something I think we wrote about in the book, and that's an activity about driving home and talking with, with a parent about, do you drive home from work? You know, the same way, what are those, those directions for going home turn by turn by turn by turn, right? And then, okay, if you had to go another way, how would you go home turn by turn by turn by turn? And then you had to go home another way, what would be the way that you would go home? And why you use this is, well, which way do you typically go home, right? Why do you prefer it? When do you use alternatives? Why do you use alternatives? And that you're comfortable in going home in a lot of different ways. And though you have a preferred strategy or approach to getting home and one maybe your spouse thinks is the wrong way, that's fine, right? This notion that you're armed with different ways to get there and you choose the ones that are most appropriate for the situation. And that's what it means to be a fluent uh, driver, for lack of a better word. I share that example because, again, often parents are like, oh, families can wrap their heads around that and transfer that to language, as Jenny explains, which is an awesome example, or, or to, to computational fluency like we talk about. Yeah. And I would just add one thing. I think, you know, these uh, what's familiar to families, the fluency with language and then metaphors and other things like driving are really important. But also, I think having just math examples. So like, I'll just use money because it's the most common time that we encounter. And if you think about like, Desiree, you have $42 and you just spent $39. How much money do you have left? And then you have another scenario, like you have $142 and you just spent 37. How much money do you have left? Well, in those two scenarios, the first one, you know, you're going to think about differently. You probably right off the bat said, yeah, I got three bucks. Uh, in the second one, you're like, wait a minute, give me some think time. Please don't ask me that right now because they're just different. It's It connects to John's metaphor of the driving. Like, when are you going to use a particular method? When are you maybe going to go to a calculator? And when are you going to use, you know, a strategy? We talk a lot, I'm getting ahead of myself, but there's a lot of strategies in the book. So which strategies will fit those two scenarios? And I think that having the math then connected to these things give parents and teachers and leaders a chance to recognize that in real life, we need our fluency, our math fluency. Jenny, that's a really good point because I think having that context with parents and families is so important. I often do that in math nights and I imagine others do as well, but give parents a chance to do a math problem and talk about how they did it right mentally and talk about their different strategies. And what I think is fascinating is many adults have these diverse strategies for computing and working with fractions, but they were never taught them explicitly. Um, and so when we name them and, and share them with, with parents and families, they're like, oh yeah, that is a good thing. My, my, my students should learn that. Um, fluency is not the same thing as mastery because fluency is not about getting something down. It's about being able to reason and pick efficient choices. So it's about decision-making. Um, and, and so that, so it is true that it's about strategy selection. So is fluency about basic facts? Well, yes, it is, but not only about basic facts. Um, so uh, fluency begins with a really solid fluency plan for basic facts and grows from there. So we're adding to our toolbox of helping parents and helping communicate 
our community members make connections to get pictures in their mind instead of just empty words, it sounds like. We're still thinking about beliefs. If we're thinking about using those metaphors that can help shift beliefs. So teaching and learning about math is highly personal and rooted in these beliefs. So even with these metaphors and making these connections, there still might be parents and community members and even some of our own colleagues who take these metaphors but are still holding on to their unproductive beliefs. And you all have categorized in chapter two, fluency fallacies and related truths. And you identify 12 fallacies that are subdivided by language, standard algorithms, access and equity, and teaching and assessing. And you will even have the summarizing chart to help anybody who's reading this book to kind of just reflect about those fallacies and help to get the mental image to help categorize them for yourself. So I want to play an adapted version of Two Truths and a Lie. So what are some of these fallacies and what are their related truths? Oh, that's a fun game. So we could play this for a while. How much time? Well, anyhow, here's one. Fluency is about how you use an algorithm. Fluency is about when you use an algorithm. Or fluency is about thinking and reasoning. All right. I hope all the listeners are really thinking about this one. I'm interested in this win because I'm doing a lot of thinking about time and time as a variable and how we have the power to potentially manipulate time. So can you tell us the truth and the the lie? All right. So the truth is fluency is about thinking and reasoning, right? And making sense of the numbers, the strategies that I am comfortable with and, and prefer, which leads us to another truth, which is fluency is about when do you choose, when do you choose to use an algorithm? Right? It's not to say that an algorithm is a bad thing. Um, it's not to say that you should never use one. Of course, they make sense sometimes, right? But sometimes, such as, well, I don't know, in fourth grade, a problem like 99 plus three isn't an algorithm, right? It's a count on situation, or in some cases, it's just I know it's 102. The lie is fluency is about how you use an algorithm, or and in other words, you know, sometimes we believe that the algorithm is the end result or the end goal of fluency instruction. And that's actually not the case. The end goal is for students to know when they might use an algorithm, when they might not, a strategy they might use instead, would they do it in their heads or would they use a tool, for example. Loving this podcast? Great. Subscribe so you know when new episodes are released and leave us a review on Apple so that others can find these episodes. We are stronger together. I think this is a wonderful idea because it could be a very engaging activity with parents, with teachers to uh, sort out what is, um, what, what these things actually mean. So here's my attempt. Are you ready? Number one, algorithms are different than strategies. Algorithms are universal. Algorithms vary across cultures and within cultures. Hmm. So This idea of universal is what I am drawn to first because um, the movie Mean Girls and how the main character was 
like a math person, quote unquote math person, because she said it's the same in every language and it's meaning universal. So I'm drawn to that idea as potentially not something true. So like, let us, ding, let ding. us know. What you- <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. Uh, uh, algorithms are not universal. Notations are not universal for how people notate the algorithms. And we need to be sensitive to the fact that they do vary across countries and there's an opportunity to actually develop some number sense and understanding how different countries solve, you know, like addition problems differently. Thank you both for playing that game. <laughs> so I appreciate that. Uh, I hope that it challenges the, the listeners to really maybe even pause and go back to reflect on what you both just said for these two truths and a lie. All right, let's move on into our discussion and shift a little bit and t- to talk about computational estimation. I'm wondering how this fits in with a discussion about fluency and what are the estimation strategies that teachers and parents should be familiar with? To me, estimation starts with purpose. I, you know, it's implied if you're estimating that it's that you know, it's not supposed to take a long time. So um, with estimation, if we're being purposeful, we're thinking, all right, we want to be able to come up with a quick idea of what an answer is. And then also, just like with uh, regular fluency, there isn't a set way to do that estimate. So we need the same flexibility with regular computation. We need that flexibility with estimation because there are different ways. And so going back to that first thing, you don't want to pick a way where you're going to get bogged down. You want to pick a way that's going to get you to a reasonable quantity in a very short amount of time. Yeah, Jenny, I think that's right, right on the money. I think... Um... You know, it plays such a critical role. It, it helps as, you know, I think you're referring to as I'm working through a strategy or through a problem, is this unfolding reasonably or am I way off and I need to adjust what I'm doing, right? I mean, of course, at the at the end of the process, it helps one determine if that solution is reasonable. But when we think about estimation in general, this is my personal passion. Jenny and I, we've talked about estimation so, so many times. I think we need to do a better job with estimation on a daily basis from, from not just estimating quantity, but, you know, asking students to estimate the results of their, their work before they, they dive in, so to speak. Um, I think as teachers, we need to do uh, some work expanding our estimation practices. You know, rounding has become yet or has emerged as yet another procedure in some cases. and But there's so many other ways to estimate. We talk about this um, in the book, and I know that listeners are probably familiar with it, but there, there are front, I mean, at rounding works, of course, but there are front-end estimates, and sometimes a compatible number is a better choice, or maybe I want to find a range to just think about, am I in the right ballpark? And so and we need to really rethink about that, the infatuation with rounding, and, and it's a pursuit of an answer, because rounding will give you a right answer, right? The act of estimating is, is thinking again and reasoning, and, and um I think we we just need to do a lot more with with that work. Yeah, I wrote down in all caps that word before to really mm-hmm. to to help think through, make sense of the problem to see what you're going to do with it. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's like tips I've learned along the way that I just didn't recognize early in my career. And that is before every problem, we're all going to write down an estimate of what we think it might be and then come back at the end and compare how our estimates, um, how they compared to our actual results, were they reasonable and and really try to divorce students from the notion that an estimate, there's a right estimate and it's the right answer. And instead we want students to think about this notion that there are good estimates and there are better estimates and you always want to have the best possible, but that doesn't mean there's a right way to do it necessarily. 
Um, and I think that's something that gets muddied for our students and, and maybe for our parents and teachers for that matter. I'm thinking back to this previous school year and I was working in a fourth grade classroom remotely. And a lot of the questions were about, you know, it, it presented the problem and then it asked students to make an estimate and then to think about how they would solve the problem and then to go back to think if their estimate was reasonable. And it was just a lot of confusion about why they needed to estimate first, why they couldn't just solve the problem, then look at the answer and then say, oh, this would be a good estimate after. And, you know, it was a daily conversation about why we need to think through and like using different strategies and maybe not having the numbers involved first to help them then like insult you know slowly introduce the numbers to help them think about why estimating might be helpful to them in their lives not just helpful to them in this hour that we're doing math today yeah and, and practicing again that 49 is about 50 and it's about 40 sometimes too and this notion of about and, and just practicing that a lot and being patient I think that's the other thing as adults we've had so many life experiences that have shaped our estimation skills. And sometimes we project that on the students, expect them to be master estimators, you know, within a week or two and don't recognize that we've had years of experience. And even then we don't always do a great job, right? Um, so that patient plays an important role. My favorite is a student who gets the right answer, the exact answer, I should say, and then goes back and, and, and does her estimate and fixes it. Uh, we probably need to break out of that habit as well. But those bad habits come from our overemphasis on accuracy. So when we don't attend to fluency, the full definition, including the flexibility and efficiency, then we take away students' number sense and they don't feel like they're so worried about accuracy that they have a really hard time with just an estimate. They want to be the closest. They want to be right. And so we have a long way to go to teach estimation and then to just have it weave in on a regular basis so they get comfortable with selecting their estimation strategy and comfortable that, oh gosh, mine was 24 off and his was only 15 off, but both of these helped us know that our answer is reasonable. So it isn't, you know, this worry about um, wrongness, but um, trying to see that we're trying to being purposeful again about uh, why we're estimating in the first place. And that kind of leads into my next question because you were talking about kids being so worried about accuracy. And it seems like even though, you know, there's lots of research um, about a more robust definition of fluency. It seems like a lot of teachers are still attached to this idea of accuracy and reinforcing what you're just saying. So as teachers are shifting their definitions and beliefs about fluency in mathematics, uh, you will provide, so it's on page 77 in your book, you have suggestions of behaviors to avoid when developing strategic competence. You have five there, but one I'd like to explore is number three that says, do not require students to show all of their work. And when I read that, I, you know, stopped and I really had to reflect on what is happening here. Because you go on to say that strategies are often fully or partially done mentally, which is more efficient. And so I thought again about, okay, what language am I using? with students and when I'm talking with teachers about student work and because we say a lot, I know I, I say a lot, they show your thinking. And I know some teachers say show show your work, but then children 
often get points taken off if they're not showing every single step that a teacher thinks should be a part of this example or that if they're using some um, curriculum guidance that if they're not if a kid isn't using every single thing that's a part of that then they might be uh, they might not get full credit. So uh, talk to us about the impact that, I guess, in a sense, forcing students to show every single step might have on them and how we can help shift beliefs about this behavior. Uh, so first of all, this is a huge issue. I bring this up in workshops and in classes all, all the time, and I get such a range of reactions from this is the best news I've ever heard to what in the world are you saying here? This can't be how we're supposed to teach math. So there's uh, it's a great topic uh, for discussion. And if we, again, reorient ourselves to fluency, we're working on strategic thinking. We're working on efficient strategy use. So this idea of, sh- of show all your steps is usually the show your work. It's about recording all your steps. That's a very algorithmic orientation that is getting at accuracy. You know, are are the steps complete? Are they correct? But it doesn't get at the other components of fluency. Meanwhile, for a student who's using a different method, an efficient method, who's going quicker because they can combine two steps is being really punished that they have to write down stuff for no particular learning reason. So not to say the word purposeful again, but I think when we're asking students to do this, we have to ask why are we having them show their work? And sometimes the answer I get from teachers is, well, because that's the way I learned. That's the way the instructions read on the worksheet. Um, That's what the textbook says to do. There isn't really a strong reason for showing all the work. But there is one good reason. It's trying to figure out the way you said it, Desiree, show your thinking. What is their thinking? And sometimes kids can tell you their thinking. Sometimes they can draw a picture or do the algorithm or whatever, but it's usually chunked. You don't get to see the whole, um, every piece. So I'm going to turn it over to John to fill in some more on this really critical change, the positive change we could be making in classrooms. Well, my my seventh grade teacher is rolling over <laughs> right now and not happy with that I'm going to say this. Actually, Jenny, you just did a great job addressing so many points, um, and hopefully a listener might rewind and hear some of those. I just want to expand on a couple or just double click on a couple of those maybe. Um, showing your work is all about, like, are you accurate and 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 you know, are you being accurate? Are you accurate? Are you accurate? And we know that fluency is more than just accuracy, right? Are you flexible? Are you efficient? I'm a, I'm a big believer in mental mathematics and, and the power of, of thinking. And I guess my point is, is that writing your steps down contradicts the idea of we want our students to be mental mathematicians. In fact, teachers have said like, they just can't do math in their head. And I'm like, well, no kidding. They're always forced to do it on paper. Um, and asking a fifth grader to do certain things on paper that we actually want them to be able to think about mentally or, you know, certain steps that they should be able to just combine and move on from quickly. It might not be right, but, but mentally shouldn't require work on the paper. I know there's this idea, like, I need to see their thinking, and I agree with it. Um, but there's also this mindset, well, I need to see what they did wrong so I can fix it. And, and that kind of sends the message that they're going to do something wrong. And I don't know how I feel about that. I do know how I feel about that. I just won't get into it right now. Um, again, I think there's some times when it does make sense for students to show their work, but I want to empower students to think about, like, when can you do this in your head? And what steps can you do in your head? And what are some steps that you then might need to work out on paper in some other way, right? Because that's what a fluent person does. That's what a mathematician does, right? They, they, they know when to use um, a tool or not to. 
Um, and I think we have to be okay with that or have to be more comfortable with it. Um, yeah. I want to add I think, one. Oh, yeah, go ahead, please. No, please. Please. I was just going to add one thing about the show your work. It's a, it's a cultural practice that is particularly pronounced in the United States. It's not a universal practice of really pushing for all this work showing that mental arithmetic is highly valued in uh, many countries, high performing countries around the world that you write down what you need to, to keep track of your work and the rest is done in your head. And then when you need to record a step, so you don't forget it, then you write it down and that you're working in a way that is leading you to your solution. So if you run into problems or making mistakes, then go back and write some more stuff down. So um, to me, it's something that we could be just examining ourselves um, and shifting a little bit more to, again, choice about when do you need to write something down so that you don't lose track of your work? And when do you, when can you solidly just do work in your head? Yeah. And Jenny, you, you know, you also said like, the part I really liked was asking a student, why did you do this? I don't believe students put things on paper randomly. I think there's thoughts behind it. The, the math may be inaccurate or something like that. But when something doesn't make sense, I can so tell me what you did here. Or why did you do this? And that we can probe students thinking in other ways. We don't have to require them to show every step all the time. Now, sometimes when we're requiring a new strategy or I'm trying to see if you know how the strategy works per se, that might be a good time to use it. But once you've shown mastery with it, Requiring you to show it over and over again kind of defeats the purpose. What you all both are saying reminds me of an, um, another interview that I did where we were talking about trusting and believing in your students and knowing coming from that asset-based view and um, just knowing that they're capable. And also, you have to talk to them just like we would what you all were talking about um, literacy connections at the beginning of this interview. So just like we would want to sit down and interview and just talk with a kid about a book that they're reading or some characters and to really dig into how they're thinking through uh, whatever they're reading. It's the same for math. We have, we have to sit down and talk with kids about their thinking because yeah, they're not just going to put down something random they're really thinking they're they are thinking and we have to talk to them to know what's on their mind and if i could just add one last thought to something a tip that's really helped me in my career and that is encouraging mental math and that you don't have to write down every step however when a pattern of inaccuracies or incorrect answers start to emerge for a student that's when i might ask that student to start showing his or her work you know, for a few problems in a row or a few days in a row or something like that, because then I can see where things might be going sideways, right? And and might have to take some corrective action or help them there. I made a deal with my, my fourth graders all the time. I was like, you don't have to show all your work until you, you make a mistake and I need to see what you're doing, right? And then you're gonna have to show your work a couple of times. And I'm not saying that that's the answer necessarily, but those are some tips that or that's a tip that really helped me as a, as a, as a teacher and, and making a, a deal with my students about trusting them, but also helping them trust me about why I needed to see their thinking. To continue this conversation about like teacher as facilitator, and we're making sure that we are trusting our students and just knowing that our students are brilliant and, but also thinking about introducing some things that they might not know yet. Um, in chapter four, you all have identified seven significant strategies for developing fluency. And some of these are the um, counting on and counting back with addition and subtraction, make tens with addition and break apart to multiply. 
And then you will even in this chapter break down these strategies by description. You give us visuals to support or suggestions of visuals that will support the strategy and situations that connect to each strategy. So can you talk to us about a few ways for educators to engage families in understanding these strategies and um, in the other ideas that we've talked about today? Yeah, um, the idea of the visuals and the situations is those are the concrete things that um, Desiree, you referred to at the very beginning of this conversation as how do you make things you know tangible? How do you make them real? So kids need that. Also families need that to make sense of the strategy and then understand its usefulness. So that's why we go through that with each strategy. And then um, John and I have recognized how important it is that families understand the work. I think that some of the pushback about strategies um, over the last decade have come from a lack of really understanding the reason that kids would be learning them in the first place and seeing the beauty of some of these strategies. So there's ways through back to school night, through family math nights, through newsletters, and all these ways to just sort of share kids thinking like there's, you know, to hear their own child explaining a clever way to solve a problem that isn't the standard algorithm and to focus on how efficient and clever that method is, um, is, is really powerful. And so um, in our companion books that are coming out related to that book, uh, we actually have a family brief for every single strategy that in very simple terms just says, here's the strategy, here's why it works, here's how it works, and here's when it might be useful. Yeah, those, those are perfect. I mean, I, I think it summarizes saying that communicating with parents what these strategies are, how they work, when they work, right? Because there's assumptions that we want students to solve the same problem with every strategy 17 times over. And that frustrates parents and it creates misconceptions that you're, you're being inefficient. You're, you're asking my student to do more than like, why do it all these different ways when you could just do it one simple way that I learned, right? And um, so I think we need to do a better job, you know, communicating with parents and helping them understand the math that we're teaching and the strategies that we're teaching. And, and Jenny's point, those parent briefs do a good job, uh, a good job doing that. And again, just strengthening that partnership so that families have the opportunity to recognize that the math that they do as adults is the same opportunity we want to create for their students. I'm really looking forward to those family briefs. I knew the books were coming up, but are coming out soon, but I didn't know the, the particular structure. So that's exciting because that, that's going to really be a benefit and just an excellent resource to so many districts and parents. Thank you. Um, yeah, we're proud of that work. I'm taking a quick break to remind Kids Math Talk listeners about all of the math professional development books that are available through Corwin Mathematics at us.corwin.com. Many of the authors of some of the latest titles have been guests on the podcast, including the authors featured in today's episode. Want free shipping? Of course you do. Then use our special code KMTSHIP. That's KMTSHIP, all caps, at checkout. Now let's get back to the interview. I have so many other questions that I could ask that are floating in my mind right now, but I will end with this last question. That's, I just want to make sure that anyone who's listening just hears from you all a little bit about how we should be approaching the assessment of fluency. And I know you've spoken to it a little bit, but what are three key pieces to know? 
I don't know that I could even boil it down to three. But I mean, I think in all my conversations with Jenny and learning from her and sharing ideas and, and hearing her ideas, that assessing fluency is so much more than just, did you get the right answer? Not to say that the right answer doesn't matter because it does, but as we're learning or well, we're trying to help students learn and grow, we need to be able to look at how are they working efficiently and and, and flexibly and are they reasonable and do they change strategies? So we need to assess beyond just the paper and pencil approach. I mean, that's one thing that I would say. There's some others, but Jenny, I took the first swipe. What's something you might add to it? Yeah. If I Well, if I was going to say just one thing to listeners, I'd say try something that assesses flexibility or efficiency, efficiency, not being how fast kids are. That's we're not timing kids mm-hmm. No, but something that gets at flexibility and efficient strategy selection. And so in in the book, we talk about a couple of things, but um, I'll just put out like you have worksheets and tests and things that have instructions on them that say solve using, and it tells them how to solve the problem partial products or standard algorithms. Well, just, you know, draw a line through those instructions, get your white out or hit delete and change the instructions. Some possibilities that could improve the focus on flexibility would be in this set of problems, use at least three different methods, circle three problems that are not a good fit for the standard algorithm. See how many different methods, you know, match methods with problems. Find, pro- you know, so that it's it's starting to help them with the decision-making. How am I going to solve this problem? How am I going to solve that problem? Circle three that you would use a compensation strategy for whatever it is that you're working on so that they understand that they're a decision-maker in the process. And then there's only so much you can get in a written piece. Because you don't know, like, if they sat and thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to try this strategy. Oh, hey, that didn't work. I'm going to try this other strategy. Those things happen live. So, you know, pull out a game that is, you know, any of the games in our book, but there's so many games out there um, and have the students play the game, give them like a sentence frame so that they have like our sentence starter that says, um, here's the answer. I solved this by, and they explain their strategy aloud. And you're just listening and you're taking notes or re- recording things on post-its or an observation tool, something so that you at the end of the lesson are asking yourself how flexible are the students in my classroom? How efficient are they in um, choosing their out? You know, and if you just try it once and do it with like a team of teachers in your building, it can become quickly your favorite way to assess. And the students immediately realize you care about their thinking, not just their answers. It's very powerful. I feel like you looked at my answers before you started talking. <laughs> I'm just saying, because I was going to say all the same things. I really was. I just, uh, you know, that that whole, like looking at a series of problems and finding the ones that are make 10 and circling those problems or the ones that would be best for compensation, as Jenny just talked about, like, and, and bef- like find those problems first and then solve them. Like just, there's so many different things to look for in different ways to assess and paper pencil, as Jenny just described, is only one way to do that. Observation interviews are so important as well. And I don't know. Sometimes as a teacher, I didn't feel secure in taking that kind of data or collecting that kind of evidence because I had it then communicated to somebody. And so I just, the thing I'd encourage the listener to do is to be confident, to to do those observations and to be comfortable and confident in your assessments uh, in those situations. It's not surprising we had the same ideas with the hours and hours of fluency <laughs> conversations we've had over um, years of time in preparation. For sure. For writing of this book. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> it's not a coincidence. <laughs> and yeah, you all give so many suggestions of activities and 
um, reflective questions and just the, the stop and reflects and all the, the big ideas of how you're going to adopt, adapt, or um, eliminate practices. I want to um, thank you all for being on this podcast with me and for talking about figuring out fluency and mathematics. Thank you, Desiree. And, you know, you said there's a lot in the book. My suggestion is take something, you know, that's what sort of we say in the final chapter is, you know, identify something so that we can make progress to really have every student fluent. You don't need to do everything, but do something. And um, we're so happy that it's been well-received. We really feel like students fluent, real fluency can make a difference in who they are, how they feel about themselves as a doer of math. So it's really important that we make progress in this area. You know, John and I, we, you know, we're, we didn't write this book because we needed another book with our names on it. We wrote this book because there really aren't books about how to do fluency. There's lots of books on building conceptual foundations and books for various purposes, but to actually get kids from, you know, away from just knowing algorithms to really being fluent. How do you help them learn the strategies and learn to choose strategies? We are so grateful that you also find it that useful. Yeah, I really do. And just, you know, so, you know, the admiration is right back at you, Uh, your work advocating for math and this podcast, your work with NCTM and your new book as well. Admire your work. So thank you for what you're doing as, as well. Thanks. That means a lot. Thank you. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to keep the Kids Math Talk conversation going. You can always tweet me with questions or comments using the handle at Kids Math Talk. You can also head to my website, kidsmathtalk.com slash podcast for previous episodes of this podcast. And join us next week for another episode of the Kids Math Talk 